0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, with a mission to help provide you with the resources and tools to help make your music making more effective and enjoyable. During COVID-19, Houghton Horns has newly expanded policies that make it easier to purchase and test drive the best equipment during a time when safety and staying home are top priorities. There's a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping and free returns on new instruments and mouthpieces and multiple easy financing options on all inventory terms and conditions apply if you're interested in trying out an amazing instrument in the selection of brass instruments that they have now is the time in addition to the musical instruments they provide houghton horns is committed to creating high quality music education content to help get great playing and pedagogy videos into the hands of those who need it check out houghtonhorns.com and their youtube channel houghton Horns for more information all right that's enough from me let's get into the episode Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am here with the principal tubist, Da Tuba Guy. Mike Roy Lance, uh, principal tubist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He has so graciously agreed to uh, sit down with me and talk to me. Uh, I met Mike at my time at Tanglewood in 2010 and 2012. Uh, He was really wonderful to me as he was to everybody. And so I have great memories and it's really awesome to be able to connect all these years later and kind of pick his brain about some stuff. So first, Mike, thank you for joining me on the show.
1: My pleasure, Ryan. Great to see you and great to speak with you again. I I remember your auditions Back for Tangwood, I remember Tom Rolf's coming in all excited. You know, he had had several people, and he said, "Now, now, now, here's this guy Ryan Beach. He's got this and this and this, but but he's got this and this and this." And he was just jumping with excitement about you. And anyway, so from there, it's, it's great great to see you again. So yeah. it's always, always great to work with you back then, but nice to see you again. Yeah,
0: so. uh, he told me that. He was just unsure. He needed <laughs> he needed some extra extra like am I crazy here or is this like a good idea?
1: Well, where did you do your undergrad, Brian?
0: Oklahoma City University.
1: That's right. That's right. Because you you in in a similar fashion, you you were not blue blood as m- most of the Tangwood fellows are. You know, right? By that I mean people who go straight into Curtis or Juilliard or or Northwestern or these big you know, factories of classical music that have great pedagogical training. And no no, no um, dark mark on Oklahoma at whatsoever, but, you know, similar to me, uh, my background with University of Central Florida or Rollins College or, or DePaul University, it, it doesn't have the same impact. At, you know, if, if if Ryan Beach had Juilliard on his resume, it, it, Tom might not have had that question. So, yeah. interesting.
0: I remember, too, very strong feelings of... I don't feel like I belong here, you know. Like there's all these people right. with those school uh, schools on their resume, and I'm this guy from Oklahoma City. Like I don't belong here, and it mm-hmm. was just a pretty form a formable experience for me in that to see just like what's out there and how everybody's and just to be treated as an equal in that regard. And it was just like it, it was a it was an awesome experience that first year, and then the second year for me, I had been to Northwestern for right. a, a, a little while, so I felt like I was coming at it from a different angle, which Gave me a different set of value or a different amount of value. So, yeah, interesting. Well, let's start with however far back you feel is relevant to get us a picture of how you got started in music uh, and sort of just some of your path all the way through to where you are now.
1: Well, I, I have a lot of I, I have a lot of distance to go far back. because I'm, <laughs> I'm not as old as Tom Ross, but I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm close. I don't think anybody is. No, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I started, uh, I'll, I'll just do a real quick synopsis of my my path into music. I, I started playing piano when I was five or six. Uh, my parents caught me listening to my neighbor's, uh, I was sitting outside my neighbor's house listening to, to this kid practice piano. And so that's how they knew I had an interest in piano. So I started taking piano lessons, did that for a couple of years. And then we were in Florida uh, and sixth grade is when you decide which instrument you want to play if you're going to be in band and and i ended up being two weeks late for band so i walked into the band room with my little slip from the guidance department wanting to play the trumpet because all the cool guys play trumpet right and, Absolutely. and um <laughs> but there anyway there was already 10 trumpets and then i wanted to play drums because the second coolest guys play the drums and there was already 10 people back there and and the guy said, hey, what? His name is John Karecki. And he goes, um, why don't you buzz your lips? And this is in front of the whole class. You know, I'm really shy. And, and he goes, you look like a horse. And, and I, I have no idea what he's talking about. And and uh, he goes, Phew. and so I, I did a little free buzz. And he goes, you'd be a great tuba player. <laughs> and the whole class erupted, you know, and i and, um, I, but there were no tuba players at that point, so you figure out what his motivation. Was, sure, you know? sure. And um, so, anyway, I got in on tuba, uh, sixth grade. I, I took my first audition shortly after for the what, what what there was called all county band, which was sort of like all the schools in the area and get together for an honor ensemble. And I got in, you know, I had to learn like four scales, and and I got in, and you were ranked. There were six chairs, and I was the sixth guy who auditioned because there were only six total in the county, and I was sixth chair. And it it, it was—I had the wherewithal to realize that—that was sort of a kick in the teeth for for my personal, you know, um, emotions. And anyway, from that point on, I I didn't take any more auditions. Um, Band became almost entirely a social function, a very beneficial social function because um, uh, my family was going through a divorce at the time and uh, it, it wasn't a uh, arduous divorce but it was you know it was it was divorce and, and um, so but the band became my family like a really important component of, of my like emotional health and, and for, for I mean to this day and and um, um, I w- kind of uh, started I, I was I had good grades you know I was National Honor Society all this kind of stuff and um, uh, when I, by the time I was in tenth grade, ninth and tenth grade, I, I started spiraling down just just because of choices you know you make as far as um, who you allow to influence you and whatnot, mm-hmm. and you know I, I didn't have a lot of at that at that point you know the family situation was you know my mom was was at that point now a single mom and was trying to wor- figure out how to work and so I was kind of on my own and. When you know at that when you're a young teenager, you need you need a lot of guidance, and and so I was sort of self guided, and and my self guided tour was was spiraling straight down, and um, so my I got to the point in my beginning half of uh, the front half of my junior year of high school that I wasn't allowed to play in the ensembles because my GPA dropped below 1.5, which is abysmal, right? I mean it's pitiful, and but I I, I didn't see it coming. Because I didn't really care, you know, I was just surviving at that point. But but that was the point, sort of a flashpoint that everybody else became aware. Of because then I couldn't go to like the district contest with the band, and and um, I, you know, it's it's like then the whole band realized, you know, and, and I saw that they saw that he, he was this misfit, and and, um, and thankfully at that same time I joined this uh, drum and bugle corps called Suncoast Sound. And um, I auditioned. I got in. Didn't think I was going to get in because I, you know, did I? <laughs> I didn't think I was worthy of a world class drum corps. That's where they promoted themselves as a top twelve. I, I didn't even know what that meant. But right, right. Um, I auditioned, got in, and thankfully I I stuck it out. And you know, we rehearsed during the winter and toured during the summer. And I came back um, my senior year of high school. Uh, and I was just addicted to practicing and, and I couldn't stop. And, and I was practicing six to eight hours a day. I mean, prior to that, I was always last chair. I was the goof off. I was the kid who got demoted from advanced band back down to intermediate band for behavioral issues. And, and you know, I, I was that kid. And then my senior year, I I, it, I, I understood discipline. I understood responsibility and, and things that I, I could completely a tribute to that year in, in Sunco sound and and also at the same time I, I ended up with incredible um, brass pedagogical teachers and you know so I, I whether they knew it or not they were teaching the standard Brass pedagogy from Remington and Sloshberg and Arbins and Clark and you know all all, all of these basic studies. I, I I didn't know what they were. They were just they were teaching me these these lip slurs and these patterns. And so I came back and I kept doing what I was doing and auditioning and got full scholarships and in, in colleges and anyway I, I thankfully I, I turned around and and then, then that 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 whole wave of energy lasted about a year. Um. Uh, that's when I was a freshman at university, university of Miami. Um, I went to study with a specific teacher, this guy, John Stevens, who left mm-hmm. the, like a week before I got there. Um, and that was un- unbeknownst to me. And uh, Again, that was pre-interwebs. And um, so uh, this lady, little lady, Connie Weldon, who came up to me, and she says, hi, I'm, I mean, by little, I mean she was five foot one. I mean, she was not a, a <laughs> not a big presence, and, and no, no no disrespect, but she says, hi, I'm Connie Weldon, and I'm the associate dean, and, you know, your teacher just uh, resigned two days ago, and I'm going to be teaching you, and I, I didn't know who she was, and, but, you know, unbeknownst to me, she was the first female Tankwood fellow back in the 50s, but I, I didn't know this, you know, and, mm-hmm. and she had played with Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops, and Needless to say, I, I was young and dumb and uh, unappreciative and un- unaware of what I had as a teacher. And they also flew in James Jenkins, this guy I mentioned earlier to you um, about um, to teach once a month. He was in the Alabama Symphony at the time. And um, af- at the end of that year, I was practicing two hours a week, as opposed to six to eight hours a day wow, in the yeah. high school. Just you know, I, I was just young and enjoying freshman year at, at a big college where where things are fun in Miami, and um, so I went back to Orlando, uh, went to a community college, got my AA degree, um, and was playing trombone in a jazz band just to get scholarship, and both my parents had been in, in law, and so I, I didn't really have a desire to go that direction, but it, it was a natural path, so I started my cur- my course load which became sort of pre-law because that was kind of what I was going to do and then I went to University of Central Florida was still playing in the, in the orchestra and the wind ensemble and all the everything and, and um, was, that's when I started uh, doing some of the student groups at Walt Disney World and then about I think the middle of the second semester there I auditioned for a job at Disney World um, and got hired there uh, there, was, there was a group called the Future Corps and uh paid really well there there were about 300 full-time musicians at disney when i started there and so they were the second largest employer of musicians on the planet there were 26 full-time tuba positions by themselves i mean all and all paying forty thousand dollars a year in the 80s in florida so it was big money for a 20 year old and so i quit school got the money and and with all intentions of um you know going back in a few years and going to law school route and all that and then uh, Fourteen years came went by, and um, <laughs> you know I, it was a blast. You know, we did seven shows a day, and uh, by by the end of it, I finished my uh, undergrad at a small school called Rollins College in, in Orlando, and and uh, was teaching at UCF adjunct, and was also playing full time in a Dixieland band. So my, by the last eighteen months of of my time in Orlando, I was I was playing seven shows a day at Disney. Uh, finished at three thirty, go downtown, and I would do five more sets with the Dixieland band. Uh, we do thir- five thirty-minute sets there, and I would get home at like twelve forty-five in the night, in the morning or whatever, and then get up and you know wash, rinse, and repeat. And I would do that. And I uh, had no wife, no life. Had no. It was just me and music. And at that point, it was it was fantastic. And, oh, and on my day off, I taught you know adjunct at the school. And then within about eighteen months, that all dried up, and. um I had to make a pretty big decision about career in life. You know, what was I going to do? And you know, I'd taken a few auditions—Portland, uh, Oregon, as one—and Marine Band, and um, had done well, made it to the finals, um, but didn't walk away with contract. And, and so I, I knew that I had, like, I, I had potential in that arena if, if I just um, kind of retooled into the classical world a little bit. Um, you know, I dotted eight sixteen pattern in. Classical music can be many things depending on where you live, and a triplet in classical music is one of the more expressive forms of rhythmic composition that is that there is. But in in commercial music, a triplet is a triplet. It's three, you know, it's one beat divided equally into three, and you you can predict it. But in the classical world, it's not. And and these are things that I didn't really know. But you know, a good a good commercial freelancer can fit in in a classical world, but but not. But they'll be outed pretty pretty soon you know and so anyway um and at this time i was i was so i got laid off from all these jobs they all fell apart within about 18 months of each other um i started private teaching like doing 40 50 60 students which was just awful i mean <laughs> it, it was just awful i mean you know 90 percent of them were, were just there because that was they were required to have lessons and you know it wasn't but I you know, for me it was paying the bills and you know, but it was really tiring and, and a lot of driving and and um I I just met I started dating my soon to be wife at that point, didn't know it, you know. And I was making this decision about career. And then I took this audition for the Seattle Symphony and completely just bombed and you know, didn't get out of the first round and I took it as a pretty big sign that maybe that wasn't the direction I should go and you know, because the odds of making it in the classical world are you know they're they're abysmal. They really are. And, I mean, and and, um, and, and especially with, with my uh, background at that point, you know. So I knew that if I had to do, the, if I wanted to succeed in this arena, I needed to move to a major town um, and study with a major player. And for me, that was Gene Berkorny at that point. And so I, anyway, I I did the Seattle audition. My dad at the time lived in Olympia, Washington which is just outside of seattle and i stayed with him during the audition i drove back to his house after the audition and on the way to my dad's place is this um uh aircraft company called boeing you may have heard of them yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um they one, <laughs> one of their plants is right there off the highway and they have this amazing museum there if, so it's sort of mecca for aviation buffs and um i stopped and and spent about four hours just staring at propellers and whatnot and um, you know, took took it as a, you know this t- taking it as a sign became very clear. You know that obviously you know. And so I, anyway, I get back to my dad's place, and if if I hadn't told you, I, I have had a lifelong passion for aviation. You know, I, I, I'm an instrument rated pilot. Um, at that point, I wasn't, but I, I had I, I was about halfway to get my private pilot's license at that point, and um, so I went back to my dad's. I had this presentation I gave him and his wife Donna at the time. And um, I, you know, basically said, "Look, if, if I'm going to do classical music, I have to sell my house, my cars. I have to, you know, get rid of my, my freelance career, go to a major city, completely start over, and then hope for the best. Or I can go to an accelerated flight school." And you know, I was 30 or 31 at this point, so you know, these are my 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 time window was, was quickly uh, fading as far as you know chron- chronologically. You know, in the U.S., you can't discriminate because of age but you know the the age to win a job in the military bands at that point it was 34 was the cutoff i I think that's up to 36 now if i'm not mistaken but um so that was fast approaching and um you can't discriminate in classical music but it happens you know if, if you get candidate a who's who's 59 years old and candidate b who's 23 years old and they both play really well the corporation is going to be more interested in Canada B because you can get more mileage out of it. Mm-hmm. Period, and it, it is what it is. And anyway, so I I presented all this, and e- even the stunning fact that you're ten times more likely to become a U.S. senator uh, than you are to win a job in a major orchestra, and you know. So I'm giving all these facts, and my stepmom st- took st- like almost stood up. She was very passionate. She never really said anything uh, like. Uh, uh, as far as the direction of my life it was, you know, it was a good relationship, but she was sort of hands off, and but she was like, "You got to do the music thing. You have to do it." And it was the last thing I wanted to hear. You know, cause I, I was like, if, "If I do this accelerated flight school, I'll, I'll have in, 10, in twelve months. I'll have all my ratings. I'll, in, in five years, I'll have a six figure job. I'll have a career. It's all set." But her brother had been a commercial pilot, and you know, the, she knew the ins and outs of the lifestyle, and you know, the divorce rate in in and the airlines is, is, is really high. I think it's one of the highest in the industry, and it's just a terrible lifestyle. And so I didn't want to hear it, right? You know, it was the last thing I wanted to hear, but <laughs> I flew back to Orlando, and within two weeks, I put my house on the market. Um, I flew up to, or drove up to Chicago, auditioned for DePaul, because at that point, Floyd Cooley was teaching at DePaul, and Gene was not teaching at a university. And the only way to get to study with Gina at that point was to be in the civic orchestra. I think. Were you in the civic orchestra at one I point? I was right an now?
0: alternate or whatever right. they call the alternates.
1: So I, I auditioned for that while I was there too, and, and became an alternate. And um, anyway, went back to Orlando, sold everything, and then, you know, meanwhile, the relationship with Amanda um, was was growing, and it, ma- it made it a really difficult decision. So I, but I, I did. I moved to Chicago, and um so I, I, I was an alternate or whatever it was for the Civic and then the third day of being in Chicago I got a call from Orchestra Hall and said, I forget her name but she said, um, you know, this, is, this is Shannon with Civic Orchestra and I don't know if you heard but Jerome Stover and he was, the, he was at DePaul with me also during his graduate work but he, he was the one who had won the Civic job but she goes, he, he took a position with the Honolulu Symphony so Gene uh, Bracconi remembers your audition and wants you in the chair and uh you know stupid me i was like are, are you sure <laughs> because i think i'm number five on the list and and she it was like a a, a long pause and she goes i'm I'm pretty sure that she wants you in in the chair and um so i got so anyway you know three days in i, I got that and and two years later i ended up in boston so that that's the accelerated story of how how i ended up here and that was 18 years ago now so
0: there is Crazy. quite a lot to dig into yeah. <laughs> in what you just told me. Um, Sorry. It's cool. I'm just trying to formulate what would be the next. I think that the best place to to jump off from here would just be your thoughts on what kind of, what things did you learn from your sort of not straight path, right? Um, yeah. Towards the Boston Symphony. What kinds of things do you feel that the Disney job or um, some of the freelancing or some of the teaching um Provided you that maybe you're thankful for now, um, that sort of not unconventional, but we wouldn't necessarily have prepared that way if we just took the straight line straight to whatever orchestra job.
1: Yeah, that that's an interesting one. I mean, there's se- several advantages to 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 doing a deep dive in the freelance world before you land a job. I mean, I you know it, e- either way you, you get here, it's great, but. I think that the um, having to survive on your own in the freelance world te- teaches invaluable lessons you know from 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 bookkeeping to to uh professionalism to marketing to you know to to washing your clothes to, to you know to showing up to the gig on time to showing up to the gig smelling okay you know with, <laughs> to showing up to the gig with clean a clean white shirt and you know the responsibility you know is it, these types of of Life lessons are 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 hard are, are not really taught, you know. So, but I think that those are invaluable things. I, you know, by, by the time I auditioned for the BSO, I I was doing the math, and and I, you know, we did seven shows a day, fifty weeks a year. You know, so that's relatively, approximately three thousand shows a year is what I was doing. So, is that right? That's that's right. Seven, yeah. That's thirty five Yeah. So. Yeah, so it's 3,000, 3,500 shows a year. Is that right? Seven shows a day. I have
0: a calculator here.
1: No, three yeah. Oh,
0: God. Here we go. Seven shows a day. I did, you yeah. did you how many days a year?
1: Seven shows a day, five days a week. So this is easy. So so five so thirty let's say thirty shows a week times fifty weeks. So yeah, yeah, that's right. So fifteen that's fifteen, I'm sorry, fifteen hundred shows a year.
0: 1,500, We did
1: it. God. We did it. So fifteen hundred <laughs> shows a year. So by the time I ended up auditioning at disney i had already had um well at least fifteen thousand performances yeah and, and not not practice sessions and not you know mock auditions but actual and they yes they may have been on the street and red, on red concrete at, at epcot center or, or wherever but there were performances and you know to, that that sets you up with um with an extremely thick bulletproof vest of of um Experienced so that whenever whatever happens, you know, you're ready, you're pretty much ready. You've already experienced all of these psychological things that are going to come in. And so, and I, and I also remember that, you know, when I was auditioning here, um, I was, you know, at downtown, uh, sorry, downstairs in Symphony Hall, they have these winger practice rooms, you know, which I think are an abomination to music, by the way. <laughs> I agree, um, they, they suck the very life out of you, but. <laughs> But the good thing is that they have these glass doors, so you can see who's in each room. And I remember at the audition, I, you know, I, I again, I, I came from a, uh, the suspect side of the world, of the music world, as far as the classical world is, and I, I would see, I could walk by, and I saw all these people um, that were taking the audition, there and they were the best of the best from all around the planet, and I could hear, you could hear, you can hear them, and, and they all sound great you know they all have great pitch and they have great rhythm and great time and uh you know the the everything's everything's right and but something that i i could recognize right away as an advantage for what i had was was um a a certain uh, level of musicality that was uh, or sense of line that I, I i think very few people had at that point and uh i I, to me, I, I you know I, I don't know what to attribute that to, but I, I can only attribute it to the, all of these performances that I had done and, and you know lear- learning all these different styles of music and, and you know entertaining at all all times of the day, all times of the year, you know do, it, it, to to crowds that were receptive, to crowds that are not receptive, and I think that gives you an advantage as a performer, and especially when you're taking auditions. So
0: you. What you described about your sort of earlier life uh, and sort of guiding yourself, uh, I identified an amount of that uh, in my own life. And and I remember when I was, let's say like 21 years old, my thought process was like right around the time I'd be at Tanglewood, I was like, I would like to win a job in a major orchestra. That's what I thought I wanted. And I just reflect back on that period 10 years later. And I think if that would have happened, I think I would have gotten fired right away because Mm. I just didn't have those skills you were talking about of like how to like manage myself. as a. All I knew how to do was play the trumpet. That's all I knew how to do. And so I'm curious if you find any truth in that, like you coming to the Boston Symphony especially, but just this level of responsibility, but later... After having a lot of those lessons, do you feel like you were more equipped now to handle that because of those, like you were describing? Or do you feel like you would have been able to step or rise to the challenge uh, when you were younger?
1: I don't know. I, I've asked myself that a few times. You know, maybe if, if that guy, John Stevens, had not left UM, maybe my path would have. Go on a different route you know I I, I don't know but then I, I wouldn't be probably here I wouldn't have my wife and these great kids and and um, but I you know it, it, so you know the BSO auditions there, there were three auditions three years of auditions and, and the the second audition was when I got invited to play live and made it to the very end and it, it didn't they, they they had a no win so they had a no hire that audition so they, they came back the third time and I to my Knowledge, uh, second hand, third hand, fourth hand knowledge. It the committee was in in a, in they were very in favor of, of me as a candidate. But Ozawa, excuse me, Ozawa at the time was uh, leery of hiring me and to to the point of saying, "I don't think so." Disney, Disney, very risky. and mm. and um. So, but I often wonder, you know, m- maybe if I had gotten hired that year with only one year of experience in Chicago. Because my, my two years in Chicago truly completely changed my playing from a pedagogical side and a musical side, um, but I, I wonder if if I had had success that year, if, if that might have set me set myself up for a very difficult probation year. I I I don't know. Yeah, you know? yeah.
0: I mean, it's obviously we don't ever know, but it's an interesting thought because I feel that it's worth. Exploring that question for people who are 21 years old and they want to win this orchestra job at all costs, if that's how they feel. Of course, right now everything is different, but I just feel it's part of my responsibility to sort of speak to myself at 21 years old and anybody else who sort of identifies with that, that there are some other things to take care of as a human being besides just being able to physically play your instrument and that's it. Right. That's
1: at least my opinion. Oh, no, hands down. I I think a lot of really... Uh, gifted players will, will arrive early onto the scene, and then have um, uh, the, the, the the human part of the equation. You know, de- dealing dealing with the hu- human side of the job becomes uh, challenging. You know, I, you know, it's, it seems to me that a lot of you know people that um, uh, end up having um, probationary challenges. They're they're usually not so much to do with the performance side. It, it's usually to, it's usually how to handle communication, you know, and, and how how to respectfully handle talking to other people. I, I think that that's usually the, you know, it, and the the harsh reality is in, in a freelance world, you you have to learn how to do that. Otherwise, you're not going to get called again. So, yeah, it's in, ins and outs, I guess. Sure, sure.
0: Uh, Another thing you were talking about that's kind of interesting to me that I would love your opinion on is you won the third uh, audition. And I know a lot of people out there who have, who could have this opinion that's something along the lines of, you know, they haven't hired anybody for one or two times. Like they're never going to pick anybody. Like what's the point of wasting my money and doing it? Um, I know there are. You know, probably countless examples of people who won a big job on the third or the fourth. You know, Mark Inouye is supposedly like seven times or something like right. that—six or seven times. So, besides it being the Boston Symphony, which is a pretty good draw for that particular audition, what made you want to keep going back and keep spending the money and keep trying? Uh, besides it being uh, the Boston Symphony, you know, I mean, does that question make sense?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, honestly, at that point. Uh, you know, I, I think I was 32, yeah, when I won the job here. Um, it, 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 you know, two, all right, so there's usually four trumpets in every orchestra, right? Usually. So so there's, but, you know, they're individual positions, but there's four chances for each orchestra, you know, that are going to come open, where when a tuba job opens, it it's it. You know, and my predecessor, Chester Schmitz, had been here 34 years, so... It, honestly, you know that's that's the one of the big drags of, of deciding to pursue music as a career, especially in the orchestral world, is you can't choose where you're going to live. You know, you can't say I'm going to be in the Boston Symphony or I'm going to be in San Francisco or, or, or wherever. You you go where you go, and if you do well in audition, you that's that's your life, period. And and so, you know, at, at prior to the Boston Symphony audition happening the first time I, I i don't think there had been a, an opening in a major orchestra for the previous 10 to 12 years so but when boston happened then the the whole wall came down and san francisco happened uh, new york happened philadelphia happened uh cleveland happened and thankfully those were all after boston but i got to <laughs> i got to sit back and enjoy it listening to all the updates on the, about every audition so
0: yeah uh, well, we're on the topic of auditions, so this might be yes, as good sir. a time as any to dig into it. Um, Mike has got a, his, his way that led him to success. I, it sounds very similar to the way I've spoken about uh, organization on my podcast. So um, I think it would be relevant for you to kind of dig into what you were talking about before we turn the mic on, just to kind of give some context. And then I would love to dive into what it looks like and kind of the why behind the way it's set up and why you think it works.
1: So, yeah, I so, all right. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I, I, I think it is. You mentioned the word organize and that that's a big part of it. Um, when you take an audition, you want to represent every piece you're playing at the same level. And I think you think about it. You, you're the audition. The time, the amount of music you're going to present to a committee is, you know, per round is maybe two and a half minutes total playing time on the face. Um, so if, if you go through three maybe four rounds you, know, you maybe they're maybe gonna hear you play your instrument 15 20 minutes maybe maybe 30 you know if it's extenuating circumstances but you need to, to represent it, pre- prepare to the level that each excerpt sounds exactly the same and you know it's, it, everybody approaches or, or I should say enters an audition preparation at different levels and you know say for... The trumpet i mean you've got petrushka you've got um uh uh pictures of exhibition you've got uh Mahler five that's the big one mm-hmm. you know all of these these Mahler three the offstage stuff you've got is it Mahler three the offstage mm-hmm. yep. or is it, yeah so you've got all these big these standard excerpts right but you, you can't you know when you approach an audition and you say well i've I've got Petrushka down. I don't need to worry about that. So, but I really need to work on Mahler Five. I've never worked on Mahler Five, so I've got to do that. And then, you, and Petruška kind of just because it's in your back pocket, you've got it. You don't worry about it. So you spend all this time on Mahler Five, at, and then at the at the showdown, the showcase showdown, Petruška um, craps the bed mm-hmm. <laughs> because you it didn't prepare it. But Mahler Five sounds great, and you lose the audition because of Petrushka, not because of Mahler Five. Right. And so, um, I, I, what I what we were talking to tri- prior to the mic turn on is my my friend um, and mentor uh, James Jenkins, who plays in Jacksville Symphony. He I, I had been following his career after after I left Miami, and we were, we had been out of touch for about ten years. And I knew that he was always making it to the finals of all these auditions, and um, that's that says a lot. You know, if you're if you're making it through the, all these grease traps and Making it to the final round, and you're do, you're doing almost everything right. And and honestly, when it comes down to two or three four people, probably every single one of those people could do the job. It's just a matter of what fits best with the hall or, or the section, or you know, there's just so many variables that come into play there. But it's just a matter of apples and oranges at that point. So. I had heard that he was he was doing this. He was finals in one of the Canadian orchestras, finals in Indianapolis, finals of uh, I, I, not, maybe not finals, but but uh, advanced in the New York Met and um, Dallas was another one of his things. And so, I and again, this was pre uh, pre Al Gore, so we hadn't we didn't have interwebs <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so i i i was I was playing at Disney. You know, I had a house a mortgage. I had cars. I had my union card. I was a professional tuba player right but I, I really wanted to learn how to take auditions and um i looked up james jenkins in the phone phone book and i knew he lived in jacksonville so i, I called information Th- that used to be 411 <laughs> used to call 411 and get people's phone numbers
0: it's called siri now that's
1: it, right <laughs> and um i there were 10 james jenkinses in jacksonville and um, i remember i called all of them and the eighth person i knew it was him his wife answered the phone and Hello. is, is uh, James Jenkins available? And I could hear him practicing in the background so that, I knew I'd hit it and she, and, and she but she was definitely doing her job. She was like, and what is this about? And so I ended up I hooked up with him and, and I, I said, I'd like to come um, come have a, have a lesson with you and, and um, talk about what you do. And, and uh, so we set up a time and you know it, it's, it's about a three hour drive from Orlando to Jacksonville, so not, not a small investment. And um, so I drove up. And I remember he answered the door and he was, you know, he was like, So, what is it you want? Because he, he knew my background and, and knew that um, I was playing at Disney and had a job. And, and um, I, 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 we, he, I went to his house and we, we started talking. And I said, I, I understand you're making the finals of all these auditions. And, and um, I would like to, I said, in five years, I want to be where you are. And I didn't mean his personal job, but I meant, as far as the people that are in in the finals, and I, I had I don't know why, but I had the wherewithal to, to ask them these these questions, and I was like, is it is it always the same group of people in the finals? And it pretty much is, right? And if you if you track it over time through the decades, there's a certain group of people that are popping at every final round, mm-hmm. and and it's just a matter of your numbers. Cumber comes up, and um. I you know that's when I said I I, I want to be one of those in five years and um I said can you teach me and he was like what he didn't under- really understand at the point why I needed it or wanted it because I had a solid career and um I at that point I had just started teaching at UCF and I, I really felt a desire to if I was going to be a teacher I needed to have that experience and that was the original driver and then an audition came here well he then he said well next he said when an audition comes up that you're interested in call me and, and we'll we'll go through it so i called him and i drove up and, and he says bring some blank paper a scissors and some pencils and uh, i was like okay that's a little weird and um so i walked into his house and we, we sat down and you know if you remember we you know i i have um so the this is the organizational stage. You you have to get, once you find out the list, you divide your list up into three equally weighted lists, you know, like an A, B, and C. If there's 30 excerpts on the list, then each list would be 10. And you want to have them be equally weighted. And so what's going to happen once you start preparing is that every day you're only going to practice one list. So Monday would be A, Tuesday would be B, Wednesday would be C, and each list has to be equally weighted. Um, so, well, for many reasons. that You're not favoring an excerpt, like the Petrushka or Muller 5, or they're all the same. And uh, equally weighted is me- meaning that uh, if it's, you have all the same, like A has the same amount of high excerpts as B, and the same as C, same amount of low excerpts, same amount of uh, high or, or loud or soft or long or short, um, so that each list feels the same. And then as, as you dig into um well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So th- back into the organizational side, be- before you even start practicing, this is when you start um, gathering all of your materials. So put you know back in the day, we'd have a three wing binder and p- put all, all all the music in these, these, these sheet protectors and whatnot. But now you, know, now you get an iPad and just create a folder of, of all the excerpts that you're going to be preparing, make sure that they're the right edition. If they're, if they're sending out your music, make sure you're, you're crossing your, or, or make sure that your music is the same as theirs as far as the markings and the dynamics and whatnot. Start finding out about the orchestra that you're auditioning for. You know, if if find out everything you can about your section mates uh, in your in your immediate section and then geographically around you. If if they've um, if they've published, read everything they've published. If they if they have any YouTube interviews you know check them out if they've got any recordings check them out if the orchestra has recordings check them out try try to gather as much information as you can about that orchestra find out about the financials of the orchestra find out about you know do do a zillow.com check of the area real estate find out how much it's going to cost to live get all this information do do a google street map setting where you walk around the hall you know so anyway all all that kind of stuff up front and, and so back to James so I go up to James and he starts giving me the history of this this plan and it was that when he was in the Alabama Symphony with um uh, a trombone player named Paul Welcomer and uh a timpani player named Tim Allen I believe it was his last name mm-hmm. um Tim Allen I think went on to Pittsburgh if I'm not mistaken and then Paul Welcomer is still in San Francisco yeah. and they were all they were all roommates at the time if I'm not mistaken living in the same house and this was around the time of the when the summer olympics were in atlanta and so he said none of us were married we were all hanging out we were just you know kind of hungry about music and we started talking about auditions when we saw this this thing on tv about how athletes prepare for the decathlon you know and the, the decathlon is um is is probably the hardest event of all the olympics because it you know there's 10 separate events that are sort of related but it, it really is you know, it's ten completely separate events, similar to an audition. And how do you prepare? And the whole special was about how do these guys prepare and how do they divide their time up equally, and so that everything, all the events are equally you know, represented. And and they learn from that and applied it to music. And the three of them were just constantly talking about this and, and perfecting this. And if one guy was doing doing an actual audition, the other two guys would take care of his laundry, would cut the grass, would cook for the you know. And it was a very supportive. Environment, you know, one of these, you know, just happens, it happened at the right time. And and so James was teaching me about that. And he was like, you know, don't, you know, if, if you think you know the ride, that doesn't mean you don't practice the ride. It, it's just, you need to start an audition process as though everything gets washed and relearned completely. Yeah. Hence, hence, hence the uh, slowing things everything, everything you start with, every excerpt gets slowed down to half speed. Um, so you jump in. You've got all of these excerpts. You've got three lists. You're gonna you're gonna cut them up on little pieces of paper, like two by two pieces of paper. You're gonna write down Petrushka, You're gonna fold up the pieces of paper. You're gonna put them in envelope A. There's ten in envelope A. And then when you get down to practice, do you, your practice session that day. You dump it on the floor, and you pull it up whatever piece of paper it is, and because you, you can't tell what it is, you unfold it, and it says whatever it says. Um, Fets. It says DeBussy, right? It says the Fets. Another crazy trumpet thing. I don't know why I know all this stuff. It's only because of Tankwood. <laughs> yeah, probably. Upper, yeah. Upper, <laughs> upper excerpts. But so so then you whatever tempo. Uh, so that's about one twenty. It, but it's but it's sixty, right? Is, is that the tempo? Marking? Yeah, somewhere so, around there. Yeah. So that so then you would pull the tempo marking back to half. So it's thirty or sixty at halftime, and for the. Basically, the whole audition process is divided into three big chunks. There's the everything is at half speed. You do that for a while till you've gone through the list three or four times. So that could be nine or twelve days, and then you're gonna do a section where you bring things up to speed, and then you're gonna um, start con- combining or condensing the list rather. So if you've had three equal lists of A, B, and C. Um, after a short time, you're gonna you're gonna dump list c and or disperse list c into a and b and then eventually going to disperse b into a so and then the last cycle is where you're basically just running the whole list every day and doing mock auditions every day and then the, the cycle that a lot of people don't talk about is the taper down cycle where you about five days out you slowly start practicing less and less and less to the point where day before the day before the audition really should be zero time on the face, so that you're as fresh as you can be, and you've stored up so much energy at this point, you're going to be fine anyway. So, and then you go in and, and you play the best you possibly can. You you hopefully present the best version of yourself at that day, and if they like it, great. If they don't, you move on. And I, I think you know one one of the best pieces of advice for auditions I ever got was from Gene Berkorny when he said. You know, he said, never go to win an audition, which seems kind of, kind of backwards, right? That'd be really hard for a trumpet player to swallow, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know what you're talking about right
1: now. (laughs) (laughs) No no offense. (laughs) But never go to win an audition, but go, go to play so well, they can't justify hiring anybody else. Mm -hmm. And, um, so yeah, that's it. That's in a nutshell. I mean, that's a two hour talk down into 10 minutes, but.
0: Yeah, it's, well, there's a lot of fascinating stuff that I would love to, to dig out of you because, uh, it's quite similar actually to sort of what I've come up with. And I came up with it through basically learning how to work out really effectively, right? I learned about programming and how they periodize from, from phase to phase to phase. How do we peak to be ready on a specific day to be the best? Not like I'll just get ready someday and hope I can keep it. But like, what is it to be ready on a specific day? And so the first question I have is the one of the, like when i talk to people about this one of the most right away is all of them at half tempo even the slow ones yeah and so i'm curious what your thoughts are i think yes should be the answer but i'm curious what you feel like the value of playing slow things even slower is
1: uh i well i think that the overarching premise for the half speed no, no matter regardless of what the in, what the performance tempo is is you're you're trying to erase any habit you have whatsoever. Go back, wash it, and then relearn it, and become intimate uh, harmonically and rhythmically with the notes. Um, and I, I don't think you can do that any other way. And and as you, as you say, like like say I, you know, for tubas, we have this slow excerpt, Prokofiev five, which which is uh, it it could be anywhere from like sixty to seventy. Three or whatever. And so people would be like, You got to be kidding me. You want me to play in Procopia 5 at 30 beats a minute? Absolutely. Yeah. You're, because you're, you're, you, at no other time will, will you really understand a dotted 816 pattern than that at half speed. And, and, and there's no other time when you're really going to be able to hear the pitch tendencies of, of, of big cadences or leading tones or whatever. And anyway, I think it takes a while. You know, my, you know I, I do half speed for three whole cycles or four whole cycles of the whole list and it for me I, I've noticed that this uh, like the sweet spot is about the se- like two right in the middle of the second time through the whole list then you start to really enjoy it but it's torture up to that sure point. sure yeah
0: yeah I uh, to me there's like a purifying power of playing at half tempo. It's, it is, it's discipline. It sucks to do. Uh, But in much of my own practice, I've sort of developed just systems that are for this, but for fundamentals and for etudes and solos Mm. and stuff. And it's about what you described, but I, I would rather play close to half tempo or a little bit faster than at tempo any day of the week, just because I feel like I'm playing Close to, if not my best, way more often at right. that tempo. And so, in my mind, if I'm playing near my best, that just becomes the way I play the instrument, which I think is the argument for why this is so valuable to do in an in audition scenario, is because then it just becomes the way you play these excerpts. And then as you just gradually speed it up, you just keep doing what you know. And then right. when you get to tempo, it's like, this is how I play it. I just know what to do. Right.
1: I, right. Yeah. No, I, to- I, I totally agree. I think the hard part, it- it's bringing things up to speed. It, you know, if, if if you've never had the joy of filling up a wheelbarrow, a single wheel wheelbarrow full of cinder blocks or, or, or sand or, or whatever, and then lifting it and trying to move it across a hill that's on a slant, you should do that because this is this is the exact experience of when you bring things up to speed if if, if you start off too fast you know you slowly bring some, things up to speed otherwise things are going to fall out of the cart you know and everything that you've you've washed all your dirty laundry that you've all these habits that you had before about about rushing rhythms or, or compressing intervals they're all gone you fix them all and then if, if you rush into that full speed there you're gonna you're gonna lose all those things that you learn
0: it's so. interesting and now i like that yeah Uh, One of the things I've included in my... So what you talked about at the end of the process where you're running mock auditions or running the list, I would call that the peaking phase, right? That's like where your your training now looks like what you need to do, which is to play a list. Um, I will, in my own preparations, will about halfway through the process put a few days, maybe two or three days of mock auditions, like right in the middle, and I do that just so you can get feedback on is what you're practicing related? Like, are you practicing something? Because I find practicing slow to be very difficult to to relate it to what you're doing sometimes, right? It's so slow that it's hard to remember right. like what musically or what should, what's the energy of this? Sure. So yeah. I, I kind of throw that in there too. I mean, you could do it any number of ways, but to me, that's like a valuable way to sort of check in and make sure what you're doing is actually related to what you want it to sound like. Cause, yeah.
1: So you're throwing a monk Audition in the middle of the half speed section. Is no, you would be
0: in the in the bumping the tempo up
1: part. Oh, the bu- okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, just for that reason, because I have found, and I don't know if you have any sort of, this would be where the question is headed, any tips on how to get the most out of your slow practice? Because if you're spending that much time at half tempo, I have found in my own practice, I might accidentally ingrain something <laughs> That's not right, right. what I want it to be because it's hard to, like I said, it's hard to relate it. So, are there sort of tools or tips or things like that you have for slow practice to make sure that it's uh, ingraining what you want it to do, or does that just come through time and doing it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Definitely, time will make you a, a more efficient practice machine for sure. I, I, I think that the hard part is, is, is a. Uh, focusing on one or two things per practice session, you know, because as musicians, we're, we're, we're so critical of ourselves. And every time we hear something wrong, we want to fix it. And I, I think you really need to approach each session with a, with a plan, you know, or maybe fixing one, maybe two things and that's it. You know, we, otherwise you, you, you could completely, um, what's the word uh, uh, when you, when you, obsess about what i don't know like an f sharp to b natural interval and it's just not working for you and you you end up spending an hour and a half on that you you could easily right i mean i know i i have but i think it's real important to to understand that only practice one or two things and also know when to move forward and that the trick is when when it comes to moving forward is is i i found that you really only need to achieve like a bump in the improvement um, uh, grid or or arch or whatever you want to call it, and then call it a day. Yeah. Um, Because (laughs) the issues that that I found is when when you achieve that bump, all of a sudden, 10 other parameters show their ugly head that are wrong. And then you just go down that rabbit hole and that rabbit hole and that rabbit hole. But if you just fix one thing a day, and then uh, the other... Sorry, do you want to say something? Oh man, I'm enjoying oh. this. Keep going. the The, the other side of, of this is is really high math. Um, it's three three plus one equals four, and I I've noticed that. I, I know that's sim- oh, like an oversimplified statement, but I've found that, if, especially when I was living in Chicago for two years, and I, I I was just practicing I all the time. Probably for two years and a and a half, I I didn't take a day off. I just was pounding it away, and. I have found that if, if like, say for instance, on on Monday, I start practicing something and it takes me I don't know thirty minutes to crack the nut, meaning thirty minutes to to just to accomplish. Um, are you guys hearing that? Are you hearing that noise?
0: Yeah, is it somebody coming downstairs or?
1: No, it's my it's my my daughter's going on the stroller up. Uh, not the stroller, but a, uh, what do you call that um uh, uh, anyway, what, do you, what, what the hell do you call that? The, <laughs> the thing with two wheels, you know. <laughs> anyway, they're running around the first floor. Let me get me them the stop. Hold, hold hey, one no worries, no worries. All right. <laughs> hey guys. Hold on, see. Hey guys. Can you guys stop the the whatever that thing is? It's really it's coming through the podcast. Sorry about that.
0: That's all good, man. I (laughs) I mean,
1: it's life; it's happening. Yeah, it is. Anyway, so three plus one is four. So Monday, it takes you thirty minutes to crack the nut, or by that I mean you 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 achieve that little bump in progress, right? And so it takes you about about let's say at minute twenty eight you hit it, and you and so at thirty minutes you're done. Next day you come back to it. It's gone. You know the achievement that you you were able to, or the improvement that you were able to achieve the day before. When you start the practice session the next day, it's it's gone, and it sucks. That's that's the hard thing about being a musician, especially a brass musician. But the next day you you, you go at it, and most people you know out of frustration might just leave it. But you keep hitting it the same issue, and then you're probably going to achieve that bump or crack in the nut about 15 minutes into the session so a little earlier than previously and then you feel great about it And then the third day wednesday you you pull out the horn you start practicing again and it's gone again it just sucks it's it's so humiliating and and humbling whatever you want to call it but but it takes you only like five minutes to achieve it on day three and then day four you pull the horn out of the case and it's there Mm-hmm. and it's it's not leaving it's it's absolutely there but the issue is that if, if, if on Monday you practice it and you achieve that bump at 28 minutes and Tuesday you practice it and achieve that bump at 15 minutes if you take Wednesday off and come back on Thursday then you're probably back at 28 minutes again so it's the consecutive practicing practicing that that will actually achieve progress and I think that's the hardest part for people to really um uh, embrace it is it, it is it's it's um it's a very unforgiving and a very unrewarding experience, and until until you you just stick it out for for several, I mean, I would say a couple of months, and you start to really understand what what progress can be achieved, you know. So Sorry. how does that work
0: with <laughs> having three separate list groups where you're practicing different excerpts each day?
1: Yeah. How does
0: that work? Yeah, in well,
1: that? well, so so then you'll you'll. Uh, you'll you'll really start to see the three plus one once the lists are combined that makes sense mm-hmm. so yeah it, it's it's it takes a long time you know it, in the beginning the reason why they they're split up up front is partially because there's so much material but also because you're you don't have the chops to get through the whole list every day so then you probably have about a third of the chops that you need when you start a process proce- start the process and that way by the time you get up to with there's only one envelope, you you'll probably have the endurance to get through it all.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You're just what I like about this is it just makes so much sense that you're building towards something. You're not just trying to learn the list as fast as possible and just hold on for dear life and hold that and hope that it's right. there. But right. you're saying, I'm going to take advantage of all of the time I have before an audition to continually get better and better and better through the process. But I, yeah. Go ahead.
1: go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah. And, and at, at some point you have to realize that this is as good as it's going to get. I mean, you're not going to, you know when you're at 15 days from the audition or or 7 days from the audition you're not going to be able to play it at you know if you're here and you want to be here you just you kind of have to come to grips with this is where you're going to be it's not you're not going to get lucky lucky luck never happens you know mm-hmm. it because on an audition day you're you're lucky if you if you get 90% of what you're good at you know so i, I anyway i i i think that um it's um it, it's just one of those, one of those unforgiving realities that musicians have to embrace. Is, is that when, when you get to the point where where you're you're presenting at a mock audition level on a regular basis, you're you're not going to get any better at that point. But what you're getting, what you're trying to get better at that point is is your own personal performance level, so yeah. that you're able to to pull your the best version of that excerpt that you can play at that time.
0: Yeah. And so to me, the value of what I try to preach more or less is the value then of taking an audition is refining the process or refining a process that will work for you. Because if you have a process that you really believe 100%, it's like, there's no doubt in my mind, I will be the best player I can possibly be if I just go through this process. Then it's like just time, right? Right. Then it's just like you said, when everything aligns and it happens for you. But I think a lot of people don't have a process. And so it's every time it's like, you know, so hard to get out of bed because you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so for me, having some sort of structure to start with and then continuing to refine it, say what worked, what didn't work, how would I change what I did to address some of what didn't work and then continuing to develop something means that not only will you (laughs) develop something that is good, but you'll understand how it happens and why it happens. And you'll understand how you can control your own learning to a greater degree. And that to me is very motivating.
1: Uh, absolutely, I I think one one of the, you know, you, when you ask me about you know how, how does playing it every every three days, you know, when you when you're only hitting ha- you know a third of the excerpt every day, it part of being organized is taking notes about what you've played and what you worked on, you know, and it can be just on on the part itself, or it can be a separate little you know uh, journal or whatever, but so that every time you come back to it, you're not like going, what did I practice before? I mean, you're, you're Eventually, you're going to get so good at this that you'll just you just know these in and out. You know exactly what you work on. So when when you pull out that little piece of paper with with whatever the the chocolate, you know, the nutcracker. The, when you pull that out, you know exactly. Okay, I, I was I was at eighty beats per minute, and I was going for eighty five, but I couldn't do eighty five, and I couldn't get the slur to sound right. And I, and my you know I, I wasn't sure if I was going to use the B flat or the E flat, you know, or what you know, whatever. Totally. So, so it, it's it's just a it's being is if if you've never been that type of an organized person this is the time to do it. And you know there there are those people that just show up and they're fantastic and they have a great day, but I I think they those are like in the 1%, you know, or or the single digit percents.
0: Agreed. And I think also that for the rest of us that aren't those people, this is how we compete with those people who just ha- can somehow put it together no problem. Right. Yeah, I I think so I, I think the part that would be most interesting to dig into now is I actually learned about this like ten years ago. You know, when you when you get you gave a class we're up in some room and right above Michael Knox's office I think oh, or yeah, something. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, and uh, you 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 sort of walked us through your um your uh, my webcam is blurry here. Let's go. There we there go. go. There you go. Um, you walked us through this, and I remember mm. walking away thinking, "Oh my gosh, like that's that's way too much, like." How can anybody do that, you know? And then 10 years later, I have found my own version of it through necessity, right? It's like I'm learning that I need this through necessity. So I would love you to sort of just through your own experience in teaching or maybe things that you feel like you weren't open to, but then became open to later on. Just like, why are people this way? Like, why wouldn't I have just tried that from your opinion? Like, why do people struggle to embrace something new that could be beneficial because it just sounds so different?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of answers to that. You know, it, 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 it could be a part of how society is now where it's instant gratification you know what what why would i possibly want to you know on january 1st put something at half speed and never play it to full speed for 20 days why would i want to do that it, you know whereas it's it's just it's part of the process i think it's it's really hard for people especially young people to to understand the value of of a deep dive in these types of situations and you know uh, Well, well, two things. Help me to remember to talk about the fourth envelope. But I I think that that the beautiful thing about this process is that when you finish it at the audition, whether you win it or not, and the next audition comes around, you're going to start that next audition prep where you left off on the previous one. I mean, physically, you won't have the same chops, but mentally, everything you gained is there for the rest of your life. It's just a matter of getting the chops back physically to where you were, but but so every audition, you, you literally get better and better and better per- permanently. and it, it also affects your playing too. I mean my my job is becoming easier and easier and easier the rest the older I get be, because of you know these kind of foundations that I put into these excerpts back then, if that makes any sense.'re mm-hmm. supposed to talk about yeah. the fourth envelope. Oh, thank you. And the fourth envelope <laughs> is, is something that you know. You asked about you, you know over the ten years, what's what's changed, and and um, you know, I, I the, the emotional side of auditions is is you know often talked about, but I, I think really misunderstood. You know, it, it's really hard from a, a mindset, from a courage standpoint, from a from a, a mental abuse standpoint to put yourself through an audition process you know it, it's it's i mean you you are, are putting yourself through the the critical art, you know of, of music when you do these auditions and i you know, don green was a tremendous resource for me as far as his books that he's written about um, audition preparation i figure what they're called but one's called audition success i think and there's another one called performance plus or something like that. And he he talks a lot about performance anxiety and so I over the years I've incorporated various types of, of uh, mental preparation as well, which I think is absolute key you know it's it's like there's the physical side of playing then the mental side of playing and and it's only so hard to play an instrument physically it's not that hard it takes time but it's not that hard right i think the mental side of it of the performance side that's that's hard you know because there's a lot more trapdoors there than there are on the instrument and i added a fourth element to this audition uh, which sort of spawned out of the what happened during mock auditions um, you, know, you want to make mock auditions that as realistic as possible so that uh, whatever emotional roller coaster life might throw your way you can handle it and so Don Green has these centering methods of centering down or centering up depending on you know if, if you're some people need to be like really ramped up for auditions some people need to be Zen like and, and you know so whatever you know he'll help you his books help you discover what type of person you are and and so uh, I whenever I would get, uh, there were a couple of excerpts, you know, a, a, that are soft excerpts for tuba players. There's Mahler 1, um, and then there's the Mahler 2 corral. and you know, as we play softly as brass players, you know, the, the thing we need the most is, is a smooth, dependable airstream, mm-hmm. right? So we don't get the shake and the sound, and, and it happens. It happens to the best of us, and it's it's uh, it, when it happens, you're like, holy crap! Is it happening? Do, do you think they hear it? <laughs> of course, they hear it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, um, <laughs> it, it it's a it's a real thing, and and you need you need to understand the triggers, and then you need to understand how to get back to business. And um, so nowadays, instead of just three envelopes, everybody has four envelopes when they're preparing for these auditions, and the fourth is called the adversity envelope. So, like so, whenever one of these. Um, Difficult excerpts uh, come up, difficult meaning the softer excerpts. Um, They have to pull out something out of the adversity envelope and it'll be 50 jumping jacks or, you know, run around the building or, or, you know, whatever. Just something to get the heart rate up. And then you sit back down and initially in the beginning of the process you give yourself like say two minutes and you have a stopwatch and you just give yourself literally two minutes until you have to play that first note and you're 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 centering you're breathing trying to slow your breathing down you know and wherever you end up at that two minute mark that's what you just go and then next time that comes up you give yourself 90 seconds you know and each time you you lower the, the window of recovery so that you can handle these situations, and you know it's it's hard. You know? Yeah, I remember I mean, you know, my my one of my biggest um like uh, fear you know the the component of fear which is a really big one. I mean the the acronym false evidence appearing real is is you know a, a big one. It's easy to say, but but it happens. And I I I was getting ready to play the MeisterSinger uh, overture, which is like the that's the quintessential tuba. excerpt it's C major. You know, every, that's like the first one everybody learns. It's not hard. It's not super high, not technical, but it's a C major scale. And, and um, anyway, the BSO used to be that if when you finished an excerpt, oh, and then and only then did you know what was coming next. They would flip the page, and you know, so they flipped the page, and it was Meister Singer. And you you would think that would be like a relaxing thing because it's 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 home base for a lot of tuba players. Mm-hmm. And I had this thought that came through my head, and it, it as clear as reading it on a headline. It said, as I'm picking up my horn, getting ready to play, the future of your unborn children depends on how well you play oh, this next episode. Oh my excerpt. gosh. And I, yeah. I don't, you know, my wife, we just recently been married, hadn't even talked about kids. I mean, we talked about it, but it was not in the cards at that moment. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember because of all this training. You know, with Don Green has you embrace these types of emotions and, and experiences r- rather than try to just deny their existence. You know, and I remember. So I remember I, I said to this thought, I mean, not literally, but in my mind, I was like, oh, I, I was wondering when you were going to show up. And mm. was, all right, so let's let's do this. And I, I, if I hadn't developed that tool as far as dealing with that kind of stuff, I, I don't know. You know, maybe I, they, that would have been one of those. T- terrifying moments, and but we got through it. So, yeah, all right, that was a long answer. Sorry. No,
0: it's fa- it's fascinating. I I feel in auditions the thing I struggle with the most is I, I can say to myself I'm prepared. I can say you know what I'm confident, so I I don't need to like care what what the committee thinks. I hope they just enjoy it. I can say I've taken this all really seriously, but I still get nervous because I kind of care about winning. Right. You know, <laughs> like right, it right. still kind of affects me in that way. And so I think. Yeah, it's all training. It's sort of like, I think most things like this are trainable and I haven't done a lot of that kind of thing because all the way up until that point, I'm super relaxed. And then I get to the audition and it's like, okay, I think I have now decided I actually want to, you know, it's like I hadn't decided up until that point, like, how do I feel about this? And then I get there, I was like, you know, I played for Chicago. That's the last audition I took. I was sitting out there. I was like, "This would be pretty cool," you know. And it's <laughs> like now I I want this thing, and you know the pressure. So it's just like hours for me. It was like two hours of just sitting there saying, "It's okay, you're prepared, you're good. Like it's fine. Yeah. Like you're gonna know what you're doing." And then I would calm down, and then like a thought would pop up, and then I would have to cut. You know, it's just like but like two hours of that. <laughs> And it's yeah. just exhausting mentally exhausting. to just keep doing it. Um, yeah. And ultimately, I felt like I played—you know—I played well. The only thing that I struggled with was Schumann too, right? And that's a soft mm. excerpt for that exact. And I played too soft, right? I didn't just play into the hall and enjoy it. I was like, this has to be so soft, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's you know, lesson learned, and I can possibly help encourage others from that experience. But right. um, in that same vein, I would be interested with this structure that you have developed. It seems to me to be possible to like run this audition program without an audition on the other side, but trying to take it as seriously as if there was an audition to see how much you could learn as long as you could take it as seriously. So you get a hold of a list. Right. And then you go through that whole process as if you were taking one, so you could see what's the starting, what's the ending point, and you could get some of that value you were describing about being able to start the process from a higher place. Do you think there's any value in that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, we we've tried to do that a, a few times. It, I, I, it takes a, a really uh, special moment in your life, time-wise, to be able to afford to do that. You know, I you know, even if, if you're a student, I mean, there's so many responsibilities. You know that students have you know thrown on them, and uh, you know, they have to play in all these ensembles. And, and I I remember when I was, um, well, two things that happened to me at when I was at DePaul, you know, and this, this was crunch time because that for me, I was you know, I was older, you know, I was 10 years older than most graduate students, they all wanted to go have beer and pizza, which is great, but I had already done that, you know, so I, I was practicing all the time, but um, I I took a dive <laughs> on the uh, placement audition for the ensembles, <laughs> so so I ended up last chair in wind ensemble and last chair in orchestra. So I, I was as far as the rotation, I got out of everything, which was on purpose so I could practice all the time. Yeah, yeah. So but th- so so that was one thing, and, and that was purposeful. But the other other thing, which was really hard, was to turn down um, a private lesson studio. So when Jerome Stover left for Honolulu. He had already developed like a forty-five student private lesson studio, which was big money in Chicago, and and especially for a guy that had no money. And I, I actually said, "Yeah, I'll take it. That's a great thing. I, I can't believe it. that's great." You know, I just walked right into two thousand dollars a week, almost. Kind of, well, not thousand dollars a week income from teaching, and and um, I I I went as far as interviewing at these schools, and this one school wanted me to go get re re. Um, uh, we uh, like all these new vaccine booster shots that I hadn't had had up, and I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know why, but that triggered. I was like, why? I'm not getting. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and and then I was like, you know, I'm I'm here to practice. I'm here to get a job. I'm not getting any younger. So I, I I turned it down, and I took I just maxed out my student loans, and I just practiced all the time. I crawled under a rock and and came up for auditions. So
0: yeah. I suppose to round out this audition talk would be, um, you've sat on the other side, you must have sat on the other side of yeah. some auditions. Uh, obviously, we've talked about how to prepare, how to put forth your best effort. Uh, but when you're on the other side, what is what are some things that you think have helped candidates <laughs> stick out to you, uh, just for the people listening, so they can kind of put our yeah. sights on the right things that are gonna, instead of I missed this note or this thing was whatever. It's like, here are the right things we're trying to put forward by the end of the process we're applying.
1: Yeah, that's well said. I think you should answer that. You probably do a better job than I, I would do. I've sat
0: <laughs> on one audition call. I'm happy to talk about it, but it's like, I haven't done that part, part of it very often. And it was a pretty yeah. interesting experience,
1: yeah,
0: to say the least. Like you hear some people and you're like, how could they How is that right. the thing that they just did?
1: Who, you know, it's like who told that person to even come? <laughs> yeah. That happens. Yeah,
0: and then you'd hear some people and you generally are like, okay. Sweet. Right. Like, let's hear more. You know what I mean? It's like it, I don't think I ever was like on the fence. It was either like, yeah, I kind of want to hear this person or like no, not really.
1: Right. I I I've sat on well, I mean, every every position in the BSO has turned over except for Two since I joined the orchestra in the, in the brass. I'm sorry, every position in the brass section has turned over except for principal horn and associate principal horn. And so, Tom, you know, Tom's audition, Ben's other audition. You know, Tom, Tom Siders, Mike Martin, those guys, Toby Off, or the whole trombone section, all the rest of the horn players, and um, you know, let let alone the percussion auditions. Um, and you you know, it it it's a harsh reality, but. It, w- within a measure, you you know if if you want to listen to this person anymore, I mean, you, you know, and I, I you know some some things stood out to me as helpful advice, and it's it's I know that everybody on the committee wants that next candidate to be the one, period, because and, and they want it to be so strong that that they can kind of relax and not listen to other people. I mean, that's how hard that's how. Strongly, they're pulling for you to play well. No, nobody on the other side is hoping that you crash and burn. And I, I think that that's sort of a misnomer that, that kind of gets out there. I, I, you know, the other side is that I don't think the committee is interested in perfection. Um, you know, they, they, they do judge you on your fundamentals. And I, I mean, brass fundamentals, but music fundamentals like time, pitch, and rhythm. So that has to be a given. But beyond that, if you make a chip or a mistake, you just have to know that, that they don't really care. As long as that, you know, actually you, you'll score more points overall if, if you have a good recovery from a mistake. Sure. So maybe, maybe when you prepare for an audition, have like prepare the most ultimate clam ever in, in recovery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's a, it's a very positive situation that, that if, if you allow the committee to listen to who you really are, then they're probably gonna. You're probably gonna do really well if if your fundamentals of time, pitch, and rhythm are, are there. If you're playing with the right articulation, with the right dynamics, the right tempo, that's great. But the people that really do well are the people that come and say something with with each excerpt. Period.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious for your thoughts on um, you know. I- I could use myself as an example. I've gone to auditions where I thought I played incredibly musically and mm-hmm. I thought I had all the stuff put together, but I didn't advance. Yeah. So if you were to guess the amount, like it's just pure like guess, right? Oof. The percentage of people that don't advance because of time, pitch, or rhythm versus the percentage of people that don't advance because they had those things in place, but maybe it wasn't musically compelling. I... Uh, Does that question make sense? A little bit. So,
1: uh,
0: like, are you more it, likely to not advance because you didn't play musically compelling, or are you more likely not to advance because, like, you had bad rhythm or you played out of two? You know what I mean? Like, yeah,
1: wh- yeah. No, if, if your if your time, pitch, and rhythm are out, you, you're you're done. <laughs> Period. <laughs> I mean that that's because you know, essentially, the outcome of the audition determines who's going to play with you, and you don't want to have to. You don't want to have to sit somebody who's had a bad time or pitch a rhythm, and, and you know by the time they're they're presenting themselves at this audition, that that should be taken care of. You know, what 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 as far as like preliminary round and, and subsequent rounds, those are the things that people are are kind of caught up on. And sure. once you get to the final round, I don't think there's anybody that has those problems. Right, right, right. You know, it's it's just at that point it, it becomes what is this person contributing musically? Yeah,
0: And I can assume then through that answer that if I'm not advancing out of the prelims, like it's either incredibly high competition, which is possible for some of the jobs that I've gone to, or there's something I wasn't aware of, you know? Like there's something that happened that I wasn't aware of and that, you know, more recording would have done or maybe whatever, right? So I just think some people it's hard myself included it's hard to believe in the all like sort of the benevolence and the altruism that you just spoke about the the what the auditions are you know sure
1: yeah everybody thinks that oh they've they've got a favorite or there's this guy's destined he's he's been subbing there so he's got an advantage or she you know she's she's it you know she's the one and i don't think there's there's truth to that i I think when people have history i think that's actually more baggage and what makes it more difficult for people to move forward um Two two audition experiences I had. One, one was um, uh, the Hungarian March. Right, it's a standard tuba thing: And at the end is And then I I biggest clam And I, I finished the excerpt and I stopped and I and I looked over at the proctor who who was this guy named Lynn Larson who's our personal manager. But I, I didn't know him from from anybody, you know. He, he was just the guy on stage, and I, I looked at him, you know, because you're not supposed to speak loudly. And I, I whispered to him. I said, I, "You know, stupid." I said, "Do you think I should do it over again? <laughs> you know, like wh- who am I asking this stranger? And, and what do I care what he says?" You, yeah. But Lynn, who, who I didn't I didn't know at the time, but you know, Lynn is a very intelligent person. You know, incredibly quick witted, very dry sense of humor, but very funny. He, he says, without even hesitation, he goes, it's not going to make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> and I, did, I didn't know if, if, does that mean that I just super suck or does that mean that it was great? I, I, it was one of those things, where I, but I didn't do it over again. I just went forward and, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I have one of those. I was in the final <laughs> round of Indianapolis. It's the uh, Heldenleben offstage trumpet stuff. Yeah, uh, The first trumpet starts on a, a, a D concert and... But that fingering is the same thing as B flat. (laughs) And so I accidentally started a partial too low. Whoops. I don't know how in the world that would happen. Um, (laughs) I started a partial too low. This isn't the final round for a job that I won, you know? Yeah. And uh, I was playing and it took me like four measures to figure out that I was like, what was going on? And then, you know, you're like, well, do I just fix it halfway through the excerpt, and they're like, "What just happened?" So I ended up stopping, and I turned to the proctor and I said, "I'm gonna do that again." <laughs> and he said, "Okay." And then I played okay. it, and it went great. And I got feedback that there, what, like you, uh, to your, to what you were saying, there, there was evidence that, like, that was good to them to see that I could recover and just come back and nail it. It was like, you know what, we make mistakes, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate you kind of going there with me. I mean, orchestra auditions right now are a weird conversation to me because like they're not happening and what's orchestra life gonna look like one, sure. two, three years in the future. But I think there is, some, um, especially with an amount of structure, there is some uh, benefit to the time that we have of not having orchestra auditions to be able to explore and experiment with different <laughs> levels of organization and preparation to be able to yeah. level up while we're sort of waiting.
1: Yeah, I t- totally agree. I, 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 you know, I've been running my lessons that I've been teaching with, with like, so if I have a lesson on Tuesday, you know, we work we every Tuesday. Then I get done with a lesson, I'll, you will know, get whatever assign them whatever they're going to work on for the next week. But by Monday, the day before the lesson, they upload to Google Drive what they worked on, and then Tuesday, you know, lessons are remote. We'll, we'll, I'll share the screen and we'll, we'll, we'll critique it together. And I, I've. You know, apropos to, to what you're talking about, this bizarre time in orchestra auditions. But I've noticed a pretty sharp uptick in people's improvement levels um, through this because they're, they're they're recording themselves. You know, it's just like what we've been telling them all along, but they're they're doing it and they're getting better and more efficient, and, and they're they're really learning more about their own playing and hearing it. And and, um, and I, it'll be interesting to see how this crop of players you know, ch- ch- might might change the trajectory of, of a lot of things, you know, going forward. Yeah, for totally. sure. Uh,
0: yeah. I think it would be interesting if you got if you would sort of be willing to Share uh, what your experience from COVID-19 with the BSO has been like. Uh, how, how is like, are you guys, yeah. I tell you guys, <laughs> I saw this picture, you guys doing Dvorak nine, but you guys are like a football field away from the conductor. Like it's already difficult not to be late. I don't know how it's possible to do that, but at least you're figuring something out, especially with the stage you have, you can kind of do something like that. But yeah. what's, this, what's it been like for you uh, with the BSO?
1: Uh, it's it's been i mean it's it's tragic and in, in in the uh, in, in with regard to um that I really love my job i mean i I, I, lo- I love playing with and playing with these people it's just a tremendous way to spend your time and you know we we went down I think March 13th was our last it was during a youth concert week and it was just over and it was done. And then you recently that Dvorak Nine, uh, uh, along with some other things, they've been coming back. Um, and not everybody's playing. Um, if uh, the BSO, uh, the wonderful corporation, great leadership, they are making it um, uh, basically. If, if you're not comfortable with the parameters, with the protocols that they've put in place to make sure you're safe, then then you don't come in. And there's no penalty whatsoever. So it's a, it's a very unique situation in that regard. And like, I did not play the Dvorak 9. Number one, I, I can't stand the piece. But so, so I made that decision even more. But, but to me, the, the size of the orchestra was... It, it's big. And, and you know it, it, if I was wearing a mask, like a string player... The whole time that i'm in the hall i'm 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 totally good with that but you know as a brass player and uh, you know a tuba player a trumpet player we move a lot of air you know and these these studies of <clears throat> aspiration studies that they do are are not based on our flow rates you know where I'm, I'm pushing five six liters of air every four to five seconds you know in and out Yeah, right it, it's russian roulette and so i i've gone and like for a couple of weeks, um, we did fan for I think everybody's doing you know fanfare for the common man, Fanfare for the for the uncommon woman. Uh, we did we did that last or two weeks ago. Last week was some educational stuff. This week I'm going in. We're doing um, an oddest piece, uh, but not one of his big you know ground earth shaking things. Um, and then uh, uh, we're doing the Moldau this week. Uh, next week is a really big week which i'm I'm personally not going in uh, and then the following week after that we're doing firebird
0: mm.
1: um we so we're we're spread the brass and woodwinds are spread ten feet apart um, and we're like you said that they, they put extensions out into the hall so the strings are way out in front of there's actually a ten foot what we call it the the DMZ zone between the strings and the woodwind and the brass and so I, I it's just strange times and, and I, I, I I'm I don't hate it, you know. I'm we're we're, get, we're getting through it. I, I definitely am, ho- am anxious for it to be done with. It's temporary, right, Ryan? Come on, help me out
0: here. <laughs> I would like to think so. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but we don't know what temporary means. It's just yeah. yeah. It's, for me, it's it's weird to think about going back to work. I haven't been back to work yet. I have a quintet service on the sixteenth of December. Mm. and we you know it was mid march the same thing for us and it, my life has been occupied with so many other things that it's like weird to think that i have to somehow fit my job back into my l- life you know it's it's been so interesting and just going back and thinking about our life returning to normal like mm. it's just weird for me
1: yeah i I've, i was real resistant to teaching and doing these projects that we've done online you know, we the Bso's done a couple of things where we you know like they have all the players playing on you know that send in their recordings and videos and but I, I've come to love it I mean I, I've, I've been teaching and doing master classes all around the US and Europe and Japan and it's it's been uh you know I, I upgraded equipment and um, learning I'm, I' it's forcing people to really embrace this technology and, yeah. and uh, I it's a game, I think it in that regard it's a without a doubt, a game changer going forward and, and a, I'm actually enjoying it. So I mean, and not not COVID, but I'm, I'm enjoying the technology. So
0: Yeah, me too. I, I think it's, it's provided unique opportunities for us to explore how would we do what we do differently, not necessarily less effectively, just what right. do these technologies offer us? And like you said, people are recording themselves more. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not, I would like it to go away as soon as possible. Um, but I, I, I hope that we are all able to take something away to make it feel yeah. like, you know, this wasn't just a huge drain on everything, but we'll, we'll take something away that allows us to feel like there's something different, there's something there that wasn't there before. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Right, Agreed. Awesome. I suppose towards the end of this inter- these interviews, I like to sort of dig in, get a little personal. Um, not, that we, not that you haven't been uh, personal already, but um, I'm a big believer that uh, all of us, to some extent, have had uh, episodes of suffering in our life or adversity uh, that uh, we aren't necessarily, we're not necessarily, I am so happy this happened, but it definitely taught me some things that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. For me, something like losing tenure in Indianapolis is not something that's like amazing, but it's also like created a lot of really amazing stuff and perspective and stuff. So I'm curious if you have anything you're willing to share. Could be per- you know personal life, could be professional. I'm just curious if there's any sort of thing that we can use to get to know you a little bit better and kind of how some life lessons became real
1: yeah yeah i don't know i mean i I was thinking about this earlier and you know some of these experiences that i was relaying earlier i you know when i was in seattle and the audition didn't go well it it was a it i i I may have been lighthearted about it but you know it was it was a very real conversation that i had with myself and with with my dad and 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 donna his, his wife um and um you know it's it's tough it how old are you now ryan i'm uh, 32 i think 32 so you're you're about the age i was when i was jumping in, into this and um I, I i i was uh i was the suspect in this world you know it, it it i i knew what it would take and that was that was a really hard soul-searching thing to sort of um you know re- <laughs> to fully commit to doing this at the same time that i was meeting my soon-to-be wife and and um Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. Think of some other times. I mean, you know, there, playing wise, that you know, there's, auditions kind of go up and down. Um, Like you said, I mean, you sometimes you have auditions where you play what for what you believe to be flawlessly and perfectly. And I had one of those. My second audition for the Marine Band, and I, you know, I, I this was after. You know, of learning how to take auditions and practicing and becoming a better player. The first one, I made it to the final, so I was expecting to do really well. The second one, and, and I got cut after the solo, which is the first thing you played in <laughs> the preliminary round. And it, you know, you think about things that can make you uncomfortable or or comfortable in a situation. The guy that was a proctor was a was a beer drinking friend of mine. This guy, Tom Holtz, he was a member of this tuba section he was serving as proctor that day so when i walked out on stage i saw him there which you know is a comfortable thing and it it, what i um i i I forget what i was playing but but i played it and and behind the screen i said thank you and i couldn't believe it and i looked at my friend tom and he was like i I don't know sounded great to me
0: did (laughs) you did you have that moment this has happened to me a few times where they say thank you after one of the first things and you're like, man, I must have played so well. They yeah. already know. They want to.
1: And then they canceled. Everybody else go home. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. That's, um, it's a, a kind of one thing I would love your perspective on too. Um, because of what you sort of said about this soul searching moment and kind of how your earlier years uh, freelancing and playing at Disney and um, just making this decision that you were going to go for music rather than this is the thing I've always done, but you could have gone as a lawyer or get yeah. your pilot's license. Like, What does it mean for you to have the job that you do where you're playing music at with basically one of the world's best orchestras and arguably one of the best brass sections in the world. Like what is this like for you having made that decision to commit and this is the result for you?
1: I, I Ryan, it's 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 um it it's a bizarre um it's a bizarre reality. I mean, uh, you know, I I'm really busy. We have three young kids at home, 14, 12 and 8 and um so we're busy at home, but I when I think about what I do for a living, I I I keep waiting and this, you know, this kind of goes back into the self-deprecating uh, way that musicians are, and I, I, I keep waiting for somebody to wake me up and say, "Just kidding, you know, get back, get back, get back to your your locker at Disney, you know, get, get back to there, and or go, you know, go work for UPS." And and um, I, it's 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 absolutely astounding. I, I mean I, I was the guy who needed to put stuff on my mirror in the bathroom you know like literally tape it up you can do it you know and and I I had to play those or whatever you want to call it play or but those are the mental games or exercises that I had to go through because there was so much self doubt and and it's you know it's easy for me to it, it probably sounds like it's easy for me to say that and you know people can you know but I was you know I I was the I was the outlier by far, you know, for, to, to end up in the BSO. And, um, so I, it, it, it's, um, it feels great and it feels humbling. It's a tremendous amount of responsibility. Um, you know, I, I, I feel extremely lucky to have Tom, um, probably my closest friend in the orchestra, you know, to, to, to be a close friend, let alone a great colleague and to, to kind of be here in this moment, as you said, I mean, it's a, it's it's a you know it's, it's cyclical. Everything you know, brass sections come and go, and and it's it's a really wonderful time to be here right now. I mean, Andres Nelson, you couldn't ask for a better conductor of a brass section. I mean, he, you know, here's this guy who's who's a great trumpet player in his own right and a great musician. I mean, I I probably show up to the hall. Uh, I I know I'm the first person to show up every day. And he's there, and I, I for years I'd always been the first, either because I teach my lessons earlier, or just because I I, I want to get there early in practice. And he's always there before me when, when he's and he's always gone da 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 <laughs> da every day, every day playing through his stuff, and it's it's really inspiring. And um, so I, it's just it's it's a bizarre dream situation, and um, I'm about. Two thirds through, and so just cross my fingers to get you know get over the finish line because I I love it you know, and as as Tom Tom jokes to me you know you're going to tell me when I need to leave before anybody else does right and you know I I I hope to keep playing until I I hope to be able to make the decision when it's when it's that time you know versus somebody else so
0: yeah he had an interesting perspective when he had that ear thing last summer oh god he was telling me in his interview. We did two separate ones and we kind of covered it in the second one. But at the first one, it was like, he was in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, and he was saying, you know, he, he thought to himself his whole career, he was like, you know, if it's time to do it, if it's time to retire, people will say it's time to retire. We'll get a really nice bottle of something. We'll get people together. We'll celebrate like a a great career or whatever. But then Mm. when he was faced with the actual possibility of, I don't know if I'm going to be able to play, he's like, I actually don't want this. Like I actually am not ready to leave. And uh, it's inspiring for me to hear you guys speak that way, to be honest, because I have my, my relationship with orchestra playing has shifted so much. And COVID-19 is a lot of it. I've just found a lot of joy in, more joy basically in some of these other things I'm doing. And I remember there was a time where I felt a certain way about playing in orchestras. And it's just, it's just so inspiring to hear that people, there are people playing in orchestras that do love it. It's not all just like jaded people who are like, you know what I mean? Like, it's so nice to hear people who, who appreciate it the way that you're describing.
1: I I think we're, you know, back to this, the section that we're in. I mean, everybody has, Dialogue is is always open. Communication is always open. You know the the commonality of of our styles is one thing, but but that doesn't. <laughs> yes, we all have common backgrounds and common styles, but but it takes a an effort to you know, and, and it takes a someone wanting to make that effort to to play together and to, to end together and to shape things the same way. And I you know I it I could see it it just happens to be the right combination of the personalities with the right conductor at the right time mm-hmm. you know for for us to to have the opportunity to, to have this Shostakovich cycle we're, we're getting ready to start a Mahler cycle recording and, and um, it, it's it's just a wonderful time very very lucky knock on wood you know
0: <laughs> that's great man i appreciate appreciate you sharing that's a like i said it's an inspiring perspective for me so oh, i'm very lucky
1: <laughs> very um
0: lucky. If somebody has listened to this episode and they thought, yes, Mike Roilance sounds like the coolest guy in the entire world, and <laughs> I would like to let him know that, uh, is there any place that someone could get in touch with you to let them know, uh, to let you know how they felt about the episode or in other ways?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm on Facebook where you can reach me out there on Messenger. Uh, I have a YouTube channel as well. And, um, I'm. I'm on Instagram. I hardly ever do anything on there. But but I'm. I'm definitely on Facebook. Just you can reach me on on Facebook Messenger. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. And um, I'm definitely into doing lessons online. And and um, it, it it could be audition prep or it could be just just a flat out lesson or or anything you want. I'm. I'm happy to do it. Um. Yeah. I. I, I like people. And I like working with people. <laughs> I. I. I think it's a big responsibility that. You know. Yes, I have to play well, and yes, I have to come to work prepared and on time, but. You know, there's a certain amount of, of, of in of gravitas that that a position that somebody and, and I feel that my position that I, I should I feel responsible to to I don't I don't know uh to help to help bring other people into the fold if you will. Yeah. I, you know there's there's something that so, somebody asked a question years ago at some brass conference somewhere you know some kid said you know it's what what can you uh, not to me, but to somebody else. They said, "What what can you say about the aspiring musician when there's no opportunity or very few opportunities? And how how do you handle those questions?" And and it, it was a guy named Harvey Phillips, uh, who who was a professor of Tuba at Indiana University for forever. Great, you know, big important person in, in the Tuba community. And he said, without batting an eye, because clearly, I, what well, I mean, or I assume he'd been asked this before, but but he said. Um, uh, there's always room at the top for great players. And I think he's right. And and the thing is is that you become a great player not overnight, but throughout your career. And it's um people pop or peak or, or break through or whatever you want to call it at different points in their lives. And so if, some, if you're 32 and, and you haven't become principal trumpet in Utah or, or you're not a principal tuba in, in the BSO or if you're 24 or, or whatever, it doesn't mean you should get off the horse. It just means you should dig in even harder.
0: Yeah, I would completely agree with all that. So if you, uh, if you would like to chat with Mike more or anything like that, that's where you can reach him. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do so at that's not spit.com and at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, found it interesting, anything like that, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. Don't forget to share it on social media as well so other people can find the episode. Mike, thank you one more time for your, for your time and uh, all of your wisdom that you shared with us on the episode.
1: My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, I'd
0: like to thank Brandon Yokum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.